I'm Carl McCollman. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Cassidy Hall, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be a part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on the Encountering Silence podcast, we have the joy and honor to host Reverend Dr. Barbara Holmes. Dr. Holmes is author of Joy Unspeakable, Contemplative Practices of the Black Church, Race and the Cosmos, Liberation and the Cosmos, A Private Woman in Public Spaces, and more. She's President Emerita of United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and also formerly worked as Professor of Ethics in African American Religious Studies. Coming up later this year, Dr. Holmes will be a speaker at Conspire 2018 and a panelist during Sojourner's 2018 Summit. Dr. Holmes, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are overjoyed to have you with us, and we would love to just dive into your world and your encounters with silence, and we're wondering if you have any maybe childhood moments um, or experiences as one of your first encounters with silence as as mystery in the great unknown? I think that I've always been engaged with mystery. We didn't refer to it as silence, but always mystery cannot be spoken of. We do not have adequate words or expressions to talk about it. So as the child of um, Gullah people on my father's side, there was always a mystery of what I call the dream-keeping women. It was matrilineal. It seemed that the first daughter born in the family would be the one who would see into other worlds. Mm. Some of us were born with the veil, and that's just a call over your face that you're born with that the midwives would say allowed you to see beyond this world into others. And so the mysteries from the time I was little, my Aunt Lee was a Gullah seer. And she Hmm. saw dead people coming back and forth, and Hmm. she would tell us who had passed, who was going to pass, and how they were on the other side. We always understood that life and death was a continuum, that you didn't come out of silence and be born out of nothing and then die and go into nothing, but that there was a repetitive rebirthing. We weren't clear as to what that meant. Uh, My Aunt Lee was Catholic, kind of. (laughs) And so she kind of merged the saints with African cosmologies. And all we knew was that she knew things that we didn't. The Mm. first mystery I think I encountered was at my grandmother's house. My grandmother had like a little cottage and it was ramshackle and leaning here and there. And it could have been a cottage like Hansel and Gretel encountered, except for the fact that it was smack dab in the middle of New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> and, you know, Central Heat was a futuristic hope. Uh, so they had this red hot coal stove in the kitchen. And I had burned my arm badly one day playing in the kitchen. And so they sent me always as, as the family and elders gathered in the kitchen to cook and laugh and talk. They would send me to the, the living room. 
And I had a favorite hassock in my grandmother's living room that was great for leaping off of and hugging and crawling around. And one day, and I'm not sure whether I fell asleep or I didn't, but I realized that I was no longer playing and I was lifting up off of the ground and I was hearing music that was more than music. And I could, I should have been afraid because I could see my supine body lying on that hassock. I wrote about this in a small book I, I wrote called Dreaming. And I had a sense that my Aunt Grace was present, uh, one who had passed on. I didn't see her, but I knew she was there. Uh, I kept rising up to the ceiling and I suddenly had the realization that if I did nothing, I would pass through the ceiling and from the earth, that I would be no more. And hmm. I was relaxed about it. She <laughs> was with me. But then suddenly, without realizing it, I started flapping my arms like a bird. And I'm flapping, <laughs> and it had the inverse effect. I'm flapping like, okay, Aunt Grace, let's go. <laughs> and instead, I was loaded back down onto the hassock, and during the time of that flight, I could not speak. I could not call. I could not wow. yell to the adults. Hmm. So when I got down, back down to the ground, my Aunt Grace hugged me goodbye and disappeared. And I ran into the kitchen to say, Aunt Grace was here. She played with me. She took me up to the ceiling. And all conversations stopped. The pot stopped being stirred. Everybody froze. <laughs> there was a game of pinochle going on at the time. And they said, well, tell us a little more. And what I realized as an adult is they understood those comings and goings, but usually it was for a purpose. Right. So it was to bring a message, right. tell you something very important, or to warn you of something. Well, when I couldn't come up with any of that, Mm -hmm. They said, oh, okay, fine. All the pots started stirring again. They said, well, you just had a dream. Don't worry about it. But my Aunt Lee, the seer, turned to me seriously and said, if she comes to you again, let me know. Mm. So to me, I held that always. I hadn't been dreaming. Mm -hmm. Aunt Lee understood something had happened. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was writing this in my book, Dreaming, that uh, my sister was looking at the manuscript and she said, that happened to you too? Wow. wow. So there was this sense of silence because I didn't tell my sisters. There were silences all permeating our life where we didn't always say what had happened. Mm -hmm. We didn't always talk about things. So that was my first tangible touch of mystery that I hold to this day as clearly as if it had happened yesterday. Mm. Wow. It's so much of your work has to do with the black church and the significance and importance of that. And on this podcast, we talk a lot about toxic silences and people being silenced. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about just the, the origin of the black church and, and then go on to maybe share a little bit about uh, contemplation and silence within the black church. Sure. Um, the black church emerges out of the chrysalis of suffering. Mm -hmm. It also emerges directly out of a religious understanding that was clear and part of everyday life in Africa. People tend to think of Africa like a country, 
but of course it's 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 not a state it, these aren't states these are all individual countries in a continent on a whole continent and they had religious beliefs that are grounded in african cosmology and so they weren't stolen from africa with no religion they had a belief in yemanja the goddess of the seas they had a belief in oshun and ishulegba the trickster uh, the trickster is the best of course because it teaches you that you're not all good that there's some bizarreness in all of us mm. so you need not point fingers at anybody else mm -hmm. amen so they, they came into the bottom of those ships um with all of that and they're in ships that are named after biblical characters mm. and they are in this if they're in a, a a british ship they're in tight packing where they cannot turn and so james noel um the late james noel says that the black church is born out of the moan because here you have people stolen from other nations different countries different religious systems different gods and there is they don't even have the same language and that the black church begins to emerge out of the moan the the ineffable the cannot be spoken suffering and they begin to stitch themselves together in the hold of those ships as community and so then community begins to develop on the continent one of the more important things about silence was when they were brought christianity they were also brought the understanding that it wasn't for them in the ways in which they were being taught slaves obey your masters isn't helpful and so they began going to what we call hush arbors where they would gather in the woods and sing into kettles that they believe caught their voices to protect them and it was out of those silences in the woods that they began to come together as one community from many nations a community that had never been a community before and the black church emerges out of that hmm. listening to just these two moments here the, the personal moment that you've just described and now this collective moment of the emergence of a of a people and a church out of suffering and i'm just i'm i'm blown away at how large the world and the universe feels now in the sense that as you said i, I love hearing this idea of the gods and goddesses that come from africa there's a sense that you were describing with with your family. There's more here than what can we what we can say. And what's so deeply powerful is that is that you're describing how to live into that in a way that I've never heard articulated so well. It's it's probably the best description of the mystical and ineffable I've ever heard. And, and 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 because it is not just we're going to be silent, but how silence and and actions and words and pain birth something else. It's it's such so powerful to hear that. Well, silence isn't the word that I often use, mm. just simply because of the problem for people of color mm. and women. Mm. who have been silenced and having been taught by Audre Lorde's work mm. 
Right. But your silences will not save you. Right. They didn't yes. save me. They're not going to save you. Right. So I tend to use the language of stillness, mm. of uh, centering, mm. and mm-hmm. of embodied oh, ineffability. Yes. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. so Beautiful. wonderful to hear you say that because this is uh, this podcast itself. We we start with the word silence as a center point, but then we've realized quite quickly what you've already articulated. Is that that word is problematic on some level, and and so th- some of these words you're mentioning are much more fruitful. So uh, I, I I just want to say thank you for affirming kind of our instinct to hear. <laughs> Silence is good. It, it permeates our lives. I mean, when I think about Olu Taiwo, a West African, who says, "You live in silence because between each breath." There is that pause. Yes. It is infinitesimal, but yes. it is a silence yes. that allows you to remain alive. Mm. And so silence yes. permeates your very, very being. But silence can also be a hiding place mm. for people who will not acknowledge the pain and the humanity of others. Yes. And the best person I yes. think of is Jane Elliott. Yes. And you know Jane Elliott from the brown eye, blue eye experiment back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does this thing now that you can see on YouTube. It's called Being Black. And she stands in front of white audiences and she says, how many of you, knowing what you know, would be willing to change places with a black person, knowing how they're treated, knowing how they're discriminated against, mm-hmm. knowing how society treats them overtly mm-hmm. or subliminally? How many will you change places with you, with them? And there's dead silence. And then she says, you didn't understand the question. Mm-hmm. And she repeats it for them and says, please stand up if you're willing to take their place. See, now, I would say, you don't even have to take their place. Are you willing to stand with them? Yeah. yeah. You know, are you willing to do what the three Marys did, stand silently at the cross mm. where people are being executed mm. economically, socially, and every other way? Are you willing to even stand with them, mm. not take their place? And no one wants to. Mm. And what Jane says is, your silence tells me that you know what's going on, mm. that you know it, and you're okay with it. Right. Because mm. you are remaining silent in the face of massive oppression. Silence has power um, positively, it's life-giving, and it's also can be a hiding place for people of dominant culture. Yeah, people of privilege. Reminds me of a a title of a Thomas Merton book, uh, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. Um, He also, in his book, Echoing Silence, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. he says that he was called in the 60s to make some commentary on the assassinations of King and, you know, Malcolm and all the others. And he said he had this sense, sort of like the sense now with the killings of children in high schools, that there is the death and there is the prayers and heartfelt. And it's a ritual, Mm. but it doesn't change what's actually going on. And so at the time, after all the assassinations, I think it was the New York Times wanted him to write a piece to reflect on what had happened. And he said, the only responsible choice is to be silent. I will not be roped into the prayers and thoughts, Mm -hmm. ritualized expressions. Mm -hmm. And the only resistance I give is I can say nothing to this evil. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it's silence is 
so broad. It's so comprehensive. And you can find a home, a space, energy, and a catalytic center for your activism. Dr. Holmes, uh, and I'm going to say this in all humility, when you were talking about uh, Jane Elliott and her encounter with the white audience, and you used the phrase something like, you know the experience of African-Americans or the experience of, of, of black persons. And in all humility, I don't think I do know that. I think that having been raised a white American, you know, obviously I have African-American friends and I'm somebody who tries to be politically informed. But part of what I recognize is that part of the reality of being a person of privilege is that you are insulated on many, many subtle ways mm -hmm. from the experience of persons who lack privilege. And, and, and you know, and that's true not only in terms of, of ethnicity, but also in terms of gender, in terms of sexual orientation. I mean, there's, there's a number of of intersections, I guess you would say. And, and so when in talking about silence, one of the things that I recognize is that I have a need to be silent, to be silent in response to, I guess, to, in response to the moan, in response to the cries of those who have been oppressed. I need to listen. I need to be educated. And I know that, that there are those who will say it is not their responsibility to educate me. And I, and I respect that. But I still need to be educated. And, and I come out of the Christian tradition, and, you know, and I write a lot about silence as a way of listening to God. But I think there's also this level in which we need to be silent to listen to one another. I realize I don't have a question for you. I, I, I think I'm just sharing what's on my heart. But, you know, I guess the question, if anything, is, is how do we communicate to the people of privilege their need to be silent? Do you have any thoughts about that or, or any, any reflections? Yes. Um, first, I want to go back and say that if I said that you knew about Black people, that I misspoke, because what Jane Elliott says is it's not that they know what is going on or what has happened or what oppression feels like. It's that they know what society is doing to African-Americans, which is why they don't want to take their place. Yeah. No, silence is, you're absolutely right. Silence among privileged people is a first step toward humanizing relationships between groups of people who have been at odds. So that's absolutely appropriate. And it's absolutely appropriate for there to be a process of healing, meaning that people of privilege come together alone to talk mm. among themselves about what their issues are, what their fears are. That's not a conversation we have together. And we come together with our community to say, what are the wounds that haven't healed yet? What are the fears and angers and ways in which we communicate before we begin to come together. There is this fast reconciliation stuff going on. Mm -hmm. So someone walks into a church, a young white teenager, murders the pastor and everybody in there, and the next day, the families are offering forgiveness. There has not even been time to process, to think, to, to listen to the move of the Holy Spirit, to do anything. 
So it, it's the same formula, formulaic kind of response. The shooter goes into the school, we offer her, uh, prayers and thoughts, nothing gets done legislatively, and then it happens again. And it's the same with the ways in which we reconcile. You have to live into it. You have to let it seep in. You have to lament and be willing to be humble enough to grieve before you can even begin to talk about reconciliation. So those are the things that I think about, but I think you're absolutely right. The willingness to listen on both sides is the beginning of reconciliation. Mm. And and I love that way you've described that because it's, as you said before, maybe a better word wouldn't be silence, but embodying. And so, right. so you need to embody the grief and you need to embody yes. the, uh, the whole thing. Go let the body has its own pace and its own rhythm. You have to recover from trauma in a particular way. You can't just snap your fingers and make something go away. You know, you have to work it through. So I, that makes so much sense to me. And the contemplative practices in Black and Native American and many other cultural uh, communities is communal. Yes. It isn't the isolated, isolated monastic. So when there is trauma, we all feel it. Yes. And we live with this subliminal trauma all the time. Many of my colleagues were saying when there was that group of police killings of Black teens, we couldn't write. Mm -hmm. The trauma was collective. The trauma was communal, and there was nothing to do but sit with that grief. Mm. Can you flesh that out for me? Because that you led right into the question I wanted to ask is, is this kind of communal contemplative what this looks like? Because in spaces, contemplation, uh, we've had this discussion on this podcast, contemplation often comes with this idea of like a, a centering prayer or some kind of practice where somebody sits alone on the mat, you know, so to speak, or does yoga. or, And I really want to hear more about what you just said, because I think uh, that is such an important piece to think about contemplative space as a communal space, because I think that's so true. And if you could flesh that out a little bit, that would be... I had this sense of it when I was attending Mississippi Boulevard Church, which is one of the largest Disciples of Christ churches in Memphis, Tennessee. It was a church grounded in African culture. Mm. And there is a song called, Oh Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's only two words for the song, Oh Jesus. And they started singing it and it, it, it started, I'm sitting there in church with my mother and I'm watching the entire congregation of over 5,000 entering into a contemplative space together. Yeah. That doesn't mean silence. Right. It's punctuated by the screams. It's punctuated by tears. It's punctuated by someone who leaps up and starts ecstatically dancing. And when I saw that, I thought, this is what I've known but had no words for. Yeah. Well, I still felt like, because no one had written about it before, I had no biblical underpinning. And then I was reading William Johnston's work. And what he said was, when the Holy Spirit descends in that upper room, it descends on the group, right. not on one person, but the entire group is affected and they move contemplatively somewhere they've never been before. Right. And so that was the basis of my understanding. 
And I've seen it happen. I've inhabited storefront, Pentecostal churches, Episcopal churches. I'm very eclectic. And I've seen it happen in groups, no matter what the cultural basis was. All of you, I'm sure, have been to powwow. Yep. In Minneapolis, we have a large Native population. And powwow is not silent. Mm-mm. But it's deeply, deeply contemplative. Yeah. And as they beat those drums and evoke the spirits, the sound is reverberant, it's reverberant, and it's resonant. But it also, it also um, takes you somewhere. Yeah. So yeah. sharing a contemplative moment without silence. Yeah. And in a group. Right. Yeah, that's so spectacular. And I'm thinking biblically, you know, because you've described this, and I'm I'm completely thinking all the way back to Africa and to these other spaces, this very kind of shamanistic approach okay. to the reality. And I've done, I don't know if you've done any research, but I've uh, or, or read any of her work, but the work of the independent scholar Margaret Barker, uh, she does stuff in the Jewish mystical realm, and and it kind of points to a shamanistic that the early Hebrew tradition is it comes out of a shamanistic visionary, something like you're describing, and that words like Alleluia, uh, we're not exactly sure what it means, but they, there's speculation it has something to do with shine, and they're recall they're asking God to shine on them, and it would be something like you're suggesting there would be this ecstatic dancing they'd be chanting and dancing around calling god down upon them uh and then that reminds me of what you said with the upper room and the spirit coming down and now the powwow and so i i I see these kinds of threads that you're linking for me that's very helpful to hear church is not an ending it's a beginning it's a holding space for people to come together to invoke the power of the spiritual, to have these contemplative moments. But we have become so in control of our lives, we think that the material is all there is. Mm. And so we come together in the churches or in the temples, and we go through our rituals. But even though we sing, come Holy Spirit, we would freak out if the spirit actually <laughs> Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Mm. So we don't yeah. really want that to happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, so our faithfulness is that we will say we want it, but we, we beg God in our inner, not today. Yeah. Um, mm. And yeah. what I have always found is the more open you are to it, the more experiences you have. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please. Take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. I want to address a little bit about the ways in which you point to art and, you know, many are familiar with the, with the desert fathers and mothers, but so many people fail to recall 
that these were black skinned people, brown skinned people. And how do you think religious art, you know, the, the white blue eyed Jesus, uh, for instance, has, has failed us in, in this being carried on as, as a false, as false art. In the same breath, though, you've also talked a lot about modern art and modern religious art beginning to heal these wounds and beginning to point to truth and the roots of what was real. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. Sure. It's always fine to appropriate the image of God in your own cultural context because we reflect the image of God and we don't all look the same. So mm. the I don't have mm. a problem with the blue-eyed, white-skinned Jesus, as long as you know that you've made that up. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> as long as well you know said. that. That's my I favorite folk quote it. so far. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any blue-eyed Palestinian Jews. And in Revelation, it talks about his feet of bronze and his hair of wool. And so as long as, I mean, I can paint Jesus as an African um, king, but he wasn't. And as long as I know that I'm just reflecting God in myself, it's all okay. The problem is that there are those who believe that is the embodiment of Jesus. And anyone who doesn't look like that then cannot reflect the image of God or humanity. And so I turn to artists like Janet McKenzie, who depicts, uh, she's Catholic, I believe, and she depicts all the saints as people of color. Her work is breathtaking. She depicts Jesus as a black woman. She depicts Mary as an Asian woman. Hmm. She depicts all of the characters of the Bible in artistic ways hmm. to help to make the point that this is art. It's healing. I think Matthew Fox calls it uh, art is like the liver in the body. Hmm. It cleanses the toxins out. It uh, refreshes and revitalizes. So her work and works of others are startling to some. To see a woman draped in white on the cross is difficult because of the role that women play in the church. So how can a woman you know, reflect the image of Christ on the, on the cross? She does that work. So I have always been able to detect the spiritual aspect in art, whether it's uh, Beyonce or it's uh, Kendrick Lamar. So, um, you know, that's not my generation, but I understand it on a heart level. The phrase, we're going to be all right, is not, not just, uh, you know, uh, there is a bomb in Gilead, you know, the old songs of all for the black church. Mm -hmm. It is a cry of healing that no matter what happens and the words all right begin to transform until he's saying, I, I, and the community begins to just live into a contemplative moment. It breaks something open. I really enjoyed the last chapter in Joy Unspeakable, when you talk about jazz and you talk about the blues and you talk about hip hop as these um, almost icons into into the divine and into the sacred. And and I, I want to read something that came earlier in the book, but, but uh, this is a pull quote that I actually quoted on my blog because I just thought it was so beautiful. And you wrote, those who study contemplation 
have assumed that the difference between European and Africana approaches to contemplation is the presence or lack of silence. Later on, you say, we tend to presume that one must create silent spaces for contemplation. It is as if we have drawn the spiritual veil around contemplative activity, seeking to distance prayerful and reflective practices from the noise of the world. And then a little later still, in Africana contexts, this may mean that ineffability is translated into dance or song. Accordingly, an ontological silence can occupy the heart of cacophony, the interiority of celebratory worship. Uh, that was just, you know, yeah, that's just light poetry moment for me. Just, just, just so, so beautiful. So I really, and then I have kind of a two-part question. So I, I love this phrase that you've given us of ontological silence, you know, and we've talked a lot about toxic silence or the silence of privilege or the silence of injustice on, on our podcast. So I think now we've got a new, a new tool in the toolbox, this ontological silence. And so my first question to you is how can we learn to hear the ontological silence, even in the midst of the cacophony, in the midst of, of John Coltrane or Jimi Hendrix or Kendrick Lamar or, you know, whoever we, we may want to be, be discerning that presence. So that's the first question. And then the second question, as, as somebody who does have ties to the Euro, European monastic tradition, I'm curious if you have any thoughts in the history of Christian spirituality why there became this privileging of total silence, like the monks who just live in, in, in you know, a pure silent space. Do you have any thoughts of why that was privileged? Do you think that had something to do with politics or, or theology? I'm just, just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I'll answer the first question, how do we hear? A part of that is the intentional willingness to be still, to let go of the constraints of time and work, mm. to be willing to live your life in small segments, as opposed to either clinging to the past or dreaming about the future, mm. to be present, to be present for each moment. If you do that, that's a very simple thing. I mean, if you think back, I don't have the quintessential answer with regard to the past mystics, but they didn't have a whole lot of distractions. I mean, getting water, walking everywhere. They don't have cars. They don't have cell phones. They don't have any computers. You know, <laughs> the silence, I mean, I, I don't give them all that much credit. It's silence or donkeys. Right. right? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So, you know, our task is a lot harder. And the Buddhists talk about stilling the monkey mind, that voice that is perpetually driving you, criticizing you, telling you what you should have said, what you didn't say. It's taking a moment to say, I have no control over that, but that voice is not me. That's not who I am. And I have to pause momentarily, depending on who you are and how often you are, to do that, to take a pause, to rest, to think and to observe all of the distractions going past you. Stillness is purposeful. You can live your whole life and never have lived. Mm -hmm. Running from one thing to another, not knowing what's important. Most of the things that I thought important weren't. 
I spent my whole life doing things that I thought were very important at the moment. But a moment of stillness would have said to me, there may be more. Wait, there's more. Yeah. I know, Carl, you had a two-part question that she'll get to, but I'm just thinking now that what Dr. Holmes is saying to us connects with what we talked about already in the past with uh, Kurt on embodiment and performance. And, and we had uh, somebody come on who's a personal trainer and an exercise person and made this point that you're making, actually, that we need to think about stillness. We need to think about not performing. We need to, and, uh, we need to have these moments of being in our body Etc. And so, again, wonderful uh, that some of the suggestions of the past are lining up here. And to step away from the 24-hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you really need to know which narrative is being put forth every few seconds? Mm-hmm. Um, there are stories within you that are more important if you will let them emerge. Indoctrination well, is supposed to be subliminal, and it is now not subliminal. Mm. It is overt. Stories that emerge help us to break down barriers between one another. If I hear your story as a Palestinian, or I hear your story as a member of the Klan, it is impossible to argue about your stories. And so we just need to spend more time telling our stories to one another, finding places of commonality. Dr. Holmes, one of the questions we love to ask is if you have any books you might suggest, poets, poems you'd like to even read to us, and even, you know, musicians or, or anything like that. Well, of course, Coltrane. Uh, yes. The ancestors blow through that horn. Oh my God! Yes. That's not Coltrane. Coltrane. Yeah, he's he's cheating. He's he's completely <laughs> cheating. <laughs> that spigot is wide open. Yeah. <laughs> Love supreme, and not be pushed into that centering moment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be Taizé chance. Mm. It can't be Coltrane. Let me read you a short, short poem by June Jordan an African-American poet, and it's called Calling on All Silent Minorities. Hey, come on, come out, come out wherever you are. We need to have this meeting at this tree ain't even been planted yet. Wow. (laughs) Um, I think the other poem of hers that I like so much is about Bell's theory of entanglement. Briefly, what he says is once two things have ever been in connection, that you can separate them, but they can never be separated again. Mm. There is some connection that no one can see, and our physics doesn't allow us to understand why. So you send two atoms together, send one a million miles in another direction, send the other one a million in another, poke one, and the other one will say, ouch. And they don't know why. And this is what June Jordan says. Poem number two on Bell's theorem or the physicality of long distance love. There is no chance that we will fall apart. There is no chance. There are no parts. 
Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. So I read Audre Lorde, and every one of my books has poems in them that I've written that come along as I'm intuiting the, the prose poems hitchhike. And so I don't know. My editor has never said anything to me about it. I just slip them in there. <laughs> Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Dr. Holmes, for those interested in contemplative life, in mm-hmm. silence, in the things we talk about here, you know, both toxic silence and, and silence in terms of contemplative life, but people that have yet to study or learn about the black church and the history of the black church, where might you suggest they begin? Of course, I, I would suggest Joy Unspeakable, your book, but um, <laughs> other than that, of course, where might you sure. suggest? There is a chapter, James A. Noel, who was the one who formed the idea of the moan as a birthing process. He has an article called Being, Nothingness, and the Signification of Silence in African-American Religious Consciousness. Oh, that sounds great. So, that That is an amazing book. And then there are... It's in a book? You said it was an article. It's in a book. And the book is called uh, Black Religion and the Imagination of Matter in the Atlantic World. And then there are books by Stacey Floyd Douglas on the Black Church, Kelly Brown Douglas on Sexuality and the Black Church. There are a number of books by colleagues. Mm. Um, Katie Cannon, of course, the womanist founder, has works about the Black Church and women in leadership. So so do you have a question that we often ask people is about their silence hero. And you've already talked about a lot of influences and, and things here. And, and you've given us a list of books and great writers, uh, men and women that you, you've admired. Is there one in particular or, or a couple that speak to you as standing for this deep contemplative space that you've been talking about today? Yes, Howard Thurman is, um, I've written about him and lectured about him, Thomas Merton, and, and, and of course, Audre Lorde. There have been uh, a number of folks, but I think if I'm, I'm being very, very honest, although they influenced me academically and supported the work that I'm currently doing and taught me so much, m- the women in my family yeah. were the ones who really seeded it into my very being. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched them. I saw that mysticism didn't have to be weird. It was very weird, but you <clears> could <throat> still make biscuits. You know, it's a wonderful quote. Yeah, you could, you could do your normal life, be loving, kind, help others, and still host these magical moments, wondrous moments, awe-inducing moments. And still do ordinary things like meet your kids at the stop on the school bus. So, Dr. Holmes, in an interview I listened to that you did, you mentioned that the contemplative move for you is not isolated. It is not radically individualistic. It is a way towards one another. And I'm curious if you can just tell us more about the hope you might have in moving forward together and what that looks like. What's your hope? Well, my hope is for more education about who we are, 
so that we can stop talking about one race or another. Um, that was okay in the 1940s, but since the testing, genetic testing has been done, and we have determined there's only one race, I'm hopeful that our language will catch up to reality. So it's not a black race, white race, Asian, it's just human race. Now, given that, that we'll go back to our own communities and begin the process of healing, even during these troubled times, you do not have the option of tending your own gardens and putting your head in the sand. During this time where you have to be careful about what you do publicly, like Ella Baker taught us, you should be atomistic, you should be leaderful, you should not have one leader that can be assassinated. So if you will notice, Black Lives Matter has not been very audible since the election. They are following Ella Baker's advice. They are doing their work, but the work doesn't have to be done in the same way during all times. Hmm. They're working with their communities. Mm -hmm. They're working with the mass incarceration issues. They're working, mm -hmm. but there are times when public confrontation is foolhardy. And we are in such a moment. And I am so proud of how smart they are. Hmm. So... The coming together means each community has to do its own work. Then those communities have to go to their own people and talk to them. Privileged people have to talk to privileged people. I cannot talk to them. I can talk to them, but I'm dismissible. They have to hear from their own communities, just like the issues in the black community have to be addressed by the elders of the black community and the young people. And then when we finally have some sense of healing, and healthy communities, we begin to talk to one another. Basic storytelling, basic seeking out commonalities, and sometimes no talk at all, just coming together and sitting together in stillness. Mm. I cannot think of a better way to close this interview uh, with you and though it could go on and on and on. I know all of us have about a hundred more questions, but wow, thank you so much for being with us today and joining us. And uh, we're just so grateful that you were willing to, to be with us today. And I'm sure we've all learned so much and uh, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, for you so me. much. And, um, many blessings to you and your work. And also to you and also to you. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversations about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website, connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash encountering silence to become a patron of this podcast your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is for our social spiritual and physical well-being <laughs>